Let's take a second and pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a God who speaks to us. How desperately we need to hear from you. Um, Every day in this world we walk through hearing voices upon voices telling us what to believe and what to think and how to behave and what's true. Um, How we need to hear from you to be, to be anchored to the truth, not the truth as some people see it, to um, hear from you how we ought to live and, and, and move and be. And so, Lord, thank you that you're a God who gives us your word, that you have not left us alone. Um, I pray, Father, as we look at James, that you will conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, that you will help us to be the people that you've called us to be, that rooted in the gospel of Jesus, your love for us, we would live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. Um, and that, that through that, Lord, the testimony of Jesus Christ would spread from these four walls of this building to the neighborhood around us, to all the places we live, and Father, even to the end of the earth. We give you glory and majesty in the name of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, um, for the next few weeks, while Neil is away, we are going to be going through the book of James together. Um, James is really the perfect book for us to take a look at now for a couple reasons. Uh, For one thing, uh, its length fits nicely into the window of time that Neil is on sabbatical. Um, And there's not a lot of really dicey, highly technical passages that us reserve squatters and bench warmers could hack up while Neil is away. So when Neil comes back, thank him for choosing so wisely on your behalf. Um, Kidding aside, James is actually a really logical choice for us to tackle coming off our time in 2 Peter. Um, Peter and James uh, actually have a a long personal connection, as we're going to see in a minute. And also, when we were looking at Peter's letter, we should have seen that Peter's concern was that his readers would, by grace, live a life that was pleasing to God. For them to do that, Peter was intent on combating kind of the false teaching and these false teachers who were exerting pressure on the churches to depart from the true knowledge of Jesus Christ contained in God's word. Near the end of his letter, Peter makes an exhortation. He urges the believers, in light of this hope that we have that all things are going to be made new, to, this is the end of 2 Peter, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's 2 Peter 3, 14 and 18. So for the very practical among us, biblical statements like that often leave us asking a question. How? How am I supposed to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace? What does it look like for me to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How can I tell if this being a disciple thing that I'm about is actually working? And James is probably the most practical and straightforwardly applicable book in the New Testament, very akin to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. James's down-to-earth focus on living out our faith has actually, is actually so practical, it's been the cause of a lot of spilled ink over the course of church history. Um, we all are Protestants. Uh, And no less than Martin Luther, who waged intellectual war to recover the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, quite apart from our works. Um, Luther kind of gritted his teeth at James, uh, which we'll probably talk about more as we go through the book. But, But properly understood... James is incredibly helpful at prompting us to really think about how we can be, as James will say it in the book, 
be doers of the word rather than just hearers only. So who is this James who introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1? Tradition holds that this is actually James, the half-brother of Jesus himself. And while there are other possibilities, other James that we know uh, through um, the Gospels and into the book of Acts, those, those other authorship theories are not really convincing. Uh, though not believers or disciples before the timing of their brother's death, at least two of Jesus' siblings we know for sure, James and his brother Jude, converted to the faith. Uh, just as an aside, I've always found it a fascinatingly compelling testimony to the truth of the gospel that James and Jude became believers, right? Um, If my son Gannon tried to start a cult, there might be lots of people who might follow him. Hudson and Cecily and Acadia would not. They know him, they grew up with him, and they would have no faith in him. So so for Jesus' half-brothers who knew him to come to faith, to believe that he was the promised Messiah, just as he said, is no small testimony. Scripture tells us that after his ascension, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus appeared to many people, including James and then to the other apostles. So James, Jesus' brother, would go on, we learn from the book of Acts, to be a key leader in the church of Jerusalem right alongside the apostle Peter. The Jerusalem church was, of course, mostly Jewish men and women who had declared that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the long-promised Messiah of Israel. But this church that James served was undergoing intense persecution, and the believers were dispersing all over the area around Israel uh, to escape the hands of the Pharisees and others. You'll remember from the book of Acts, uh, Saul of Tarsus was pursuing these people who were part of the way of Jesus to kill them. Even more broadly, Israel as an ethnic nation is scattered, having never really fully coalesced back again in its borders after the destruction of their nation at the hand of the Babylonians and Assyrians. And has what had been true before that was still true here, that wherever these people of God scattered to, they always seem to find hardship and ridicule and persecution. And and so James is writing his book to these Jewish believers that he calls the 12 tribes, his flock that has been scattered far and wide all over the ancient Near East. So what message is James going to give to his church, his people, as a pastor and as a brother in the Savior, Jesus Christ? His opening volley is maybe one of the most famous passages in the entire New Testament. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, This was actually one of the first passages of Scripture I remember memorizing as a kid. I was in choir, and we stood up and we sang a little song to a tape back in the 80s that had this nice little Twyla Paris synth bouncy thing going on. Consider it joy when you are a town. And what's funny about it to me is um, it, it made James sound weird, right? Consider it joy when you're tempted and face trials of many kinds. Um, James is being really sober here. Remember, he's talked about his letter is addressed to his brothers and sisters who are part of the, di- the dispersion, the diaspora, who've been scattered, who, who are away from their homeland. And remember, for an ethnic Jew to be away from Israel was a big deal. 
And again, under intense persecution. So James is making an important and sober point. He puts it right up front in his letters. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you who have been scattered all over the face of the earth and face persecutions day by day, how are you going to respond to them? How are you going to respond to these trials and troubles when they come? Because we know trials will come. Um, If you've spent any time as part of a church family, in, in our church maybe, praying for one another in our ABFs, if you watch the updates on our prayer chain, if you just look at what happens in the circle of people in your own life, it's, it's no news that difficult testing circumstances are an absolute certainty. As Wes prayed earlier, there are people in this room who are undergoing severe trials, some that have just walked into their life in the past few weeks and others that have been going on for years, whittling and kind of draining them dry uh, with how long they've felt under this weight. And along the lines of the people that James is addressing, we know that while we get to gather here freely in this building and with a loud speaker and loud music, there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who gather under bare bulbs and under the threat of death for naming the name of Jesus and being together as his church. That's the kind of people James is talking to, people who know hardship and struggle. So so how is it then that James can call these people in all these different circumstances and us in our own suffering, how can he say to them, count it all joy, my brothers? When you meet trials, consider it joy. How are we supposed to find joy in the midst of these kinds of circumstances? Think about the thing that has been the most difficult for you in your life. Where was the joy in that? We can find joy in those things because, James writes, you know, we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So there's a purpose here. If there's there's no reason for suffering and trial, if there's no plan of God, if there's no rescue from it or reward for having made through it, it would be almost cruel to tell someone that you should just consider what you're going through joy. That's why that bouncy little 80s tune I mentioned earlier doesn't really sit right with me. But, but James says that there's a purpose in our trials. Being shaken, being rocked right to our core is intended to make our faith unshakable. Faith, as it turns out, this belief that we have is like muscle tissue. When you stress it to its limit, it gets stronger, not weaker. When your faith is threatened and tested and stretched right up to the breaking point, the result on the other side is a greater capacity to endure that James calls steadfastness. Our Heavenly Father loves us so much that he will test our faith, putting us right up to the edge of failure so as to keep us pure and strong. And having been strengthened, this steadfast faith helps us, verse 4, to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's goal expressed here and elsewhere all over scripture is to perfect us, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And and one vehicle that God uses to perfect us is this refining power of trials. That's why there's joy in the midst of struggle. It's not that Christians ought to be sadists, relishing pain and tragedy, 
Isn't it great, all the terrible things that have happened? But rather, we have sure hope and assurance that in the midst of what's happening around us, God is working for our good. That God is shaping, shaping us and fashioning us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so we can have joy. We are being shaped into the image of Jesus Christ, learning how to be like him. Now, I don't know about you, but considerate joy when you are facing trials of various kinds is not my natural response to suffering and trials, though. Um, I have strong tendencies when I face trials to question God. Why is this happening? To doubt his goodness or to get bitter. Um, for those of you who are suffering this morning, maybe that describes you. James is reminding us, trying to turn our eyes away from those fleshly kind of feelings, that because of Jesus Christ, God's word declares that God is always working for the good of his beloved children. Whatever and whenever trials may come, we don't need to doubt the goodness and loving kindness of God. If, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if the cross really paid for sin, and if the grave really was empty on Easter morning, we can rest from our doubts and fears and, and, and take comfort in the knowledge that God has good purposes for us in the midst of our trials, deepening our reliance on and our trust in him, and, and out of that trust, enabling us to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. My favorite preacher puts it this way. Um, no one says, walking on the primrose path of sunshine and flowers, I had the most amazing experience of God, of the presence of God that I ever had. No one says that. It's, it's always in the trial that God meets us. It's always in struggle where God comforts us. It's always when we feel alone and lonely and tucked in a dark corner of life that the presence of the Lord sweeps in to comfort us and wrap us in his arms. That's where God does his work to strengthen us and refine us. Uh, the same notion was in the Apostle Paul earlier where we read in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. Paul writes, he's, he's writing to the Corinthian believers. He started by saying, we want to talk about comfort. There's a comfort that we have received from God that we want you to be comforted with, and we want you to turn around and comfort other people out of the same comfort that you've received. And so Paul says, so we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions that we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's trial. When, when death is the better option, you are under stress and strain. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the very sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I love that imagery. We felt like we had received a death sentence, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And so it is with our text this morning. James is saying, you believers, you scattered and persecuted, don't lose heart. Have joy in the midst of your trials because God's design is to strengthen your faith and perfect you through it. But how, right? Practical. 
This considerate joy thing sounds beautiful, but it also sounds nearly impossible, right? We, we want to maintain joy in the midst of our trials, but we often lack the spiritual insight to really be able to enable that response. We, we struggle to really understand why God had to do it this way. We struggle to be submissive to God's will. We find ourselves not knowing what to do in the midst of those circumstances or how to respond. Um, do I take this job or that job? Do we, um, do I, do we sell this or what? Um, do I get this treatment or that treatment? Or do I trust the Lord in the midst of it? How in the world do we navigate our way through these trials that we're facing? That leads us to James in verse 5. Again, just notice how practical and straightforward he is. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, now wisdom properly understood is practical. Um, While I was preparing to preach, I I stumbled across this quote from uh, the famous Vermonter Calvin Coolidge. Uh, So might as well quote it. We're in Vermont. Uh, Our former president wrote, Knowledge comes, but wisdom lingers. It may not be difficult to store up in the mind a vast quantity of facts within a short time, but the ability to form judgments requires the severe discipline of hard work and the tempering heat of experience and maturity. This is true wisdom. Wisdom is taking the things that we know to be true and putting them to work in the situation that we're facing in our life around us. Wisdom is eminently practical. And do you hear that kind of hard-earned refinement kind of language even there in Coolidge's quote? I don't know if Coolidge was a believer, but there's echoes of James all through that. This verse, verse 5, is one of the most amazing and beautiful statements in all of Scripture. Hear this. If you lack wisdom, you can ask God as one of his beloved children, and it will be given to you. Because God gives generously to all without reproach. Are you struggling in the midst of your trials and not feeling joy there? Pray. Are you unsure what to do next in the situation that's right in front of you and a decision has to be made? Ask the Lord. Do you feel your faith cracking under the stress of your trials? Turn to your loving Heavenly Father and he will give you wisdom and grace. There is absolutely no equivocation here in James's words, no waffling of tone. Now understand that wisdom does not always come all at once, and it doesn't come always with some audible voice from heaven or some other supernatural sense that you've received it. Um, There's a family in our church who's been walking through a very difficult set of circumstances for a number of months. It's been a privilege that I've had to be able to be alongside them and pray with them about that. And, and through it all, their consistent word to me was just pray that God would help us know what to do. We want to do the right thing. We really want to honor God. And they had a very difficult choice set between them. Do we do this or not? And I think what they were looking for was some voice from heaven, do this or don't, right? That isn't how wisdom works. But James's promise here is if, that we, if we humble our heart before the Lord, and if we ask God, Lord, I don't know what to do here. This seems intractable, and I can't figure out whether to turn to the right or to the left. Will you help me? That God will guide us. And that often looks like whatever decision we make, 
hopefully not rooted in sin in our heart, God will walk us through. He will grow us. He will show himself faithful to us. But James says, he does put a risk on this. He said, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So this sounds scary, right? So I can ask God for wisdom and God gives generously unless I'm doubting. And if I'm doubting, I'm stuck because I shouldn't assume I can receive anything from God. James is after something a little bit different here, I think. If, If our perfect faith and perfect trust was what was required to see God's purposes accomplished in our life, we're stuck. Okay? And it's the clear testimony of other places in Scripture that that's not it. What James is talking about here is if we doubt God's word. Do we doubt what James has already taught, that God can use this trial for growth, for strengthening our faith? Double-mindedness is a sense of trying to live in two worlds at the same time, this present world that's passing away and the age to come. We Wanting the goals and desires of this world and the goals and desires of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ at the same time. Those two things don't mix. And there's no way that they can, they can coexist. I, I think of it like this. If, if I'm seething with anger in the midst of a set of circumstances that the Lord has brought into my life as a trial, what I need at that moment is not wisdom. I need grace to repent and grace to trust him. If I come looking for wisdom and anger, the kind of wisdom I'm looking for is for either God to fix it for me, God, you did this, stop it, or I'm looking for him to make it short. I have a very selfish interest at mine. God, I'm in the midst of this trial, make it fast, or else. Putting God to the test that way doesn't work. Or or maybe I'm praying for wisdom in a set of circumstances when I have a very clear worldly idea and desire that's lodged in my heart like a splinter. And I know what answer I want from the Lord, regardless of whether it's his answer or not. Lord, there's this really amazing job. Um, It would pay me a whole ton of money. I'd have a lot of power and success. It would also take me away from my family every weekend for the month. I'd never be in church anymore and uh, I'd be traveling 70% of the other time. Now, that may be a good choice for some other people. For my family, me being away like that would be really difficult. So if I said, Lord, I'm asking for wisdom for you to tell me to take this job that I want to take, having no thought for whether or not God, it actually lines up with what God has disclosed as his will in his word at all, why would I expect the Lord to hear me and make me wise in that circumstance? So, so the doubt James is talking about when we have, is when we have twin desires operating. You will find yourself frustrated and wisdomless in dealing with trials. When you come up against losses in this life, you are faced with loss. Uh, you are not going to feel peace or comfort or joy if you are counting this life as ultimate. If, if I am praying, God, the only way that I'm going to feel comfort is if you preserve what I have. Then, then that's not subjecting ourselves to the will of God and letting him have his way with us. It's only if we're single-minded and in some sense have given ourselves over to the age to come, if we've given ourselves over to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's when we're able to put the trials and struggles of this world in perspective 
It's that wisdom that shows itself in our prayers when we pray in response to trials. I, I, I grew up um, kind of in a, my mom kind of cast around for spiritual traditions for us as a family. Uh, I grew up in a kind of church that was starting to go a little wonky theologically, and so my mother, my, my father was not an active believer at the time. Uh, my mom would find the, the, the biggest thing that was going on and would send us there in the hope that it would grab a hold of me and keep me in the faith. And so I can remember going to these like really high-end Pentecostal youth groups, right, where people are like, Lord, I'm trusting that Wes Hebert is going to be healed of that tie. I know it's going to happen. And, and fully expecting, it's a perfectly fine tie. I was just looking for somebody to pick on. Uh, expecting to open their eyes and it be changed, right? And there was never any humility of, but Lord, if you're not going to change his tie, give Wes grace and mercy to kind of go through. I, I fully believe that God can heal anybody in this room who is sick right now. And when we gather as elders sometimes to pray with people, that's what we ask for. And in my heart, I know he can do it. But there are lots of times when God's healing hand is stayed. And, and learning to have joy in trials is humbling ourselves under the hand of the Lord and trusting that he is good, even when he doesn't heal or provide. So do you see how these two sections fit together? God uses trials how? to grow and to strengthen our faith. And when we come to the end of ourselves in the midst of those trials, God promises that he will grant us heavenly wisdom if we will turn to him in faith. See, see the feedback loop? Trials strengthen our faith so that we turn to God in faith seeking wisdom and around and around the wheel goes. And so that leads James to say in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This section is actually a little tough to translate and there are a lot of different ways you could potentially parse the sentences out. So if you actually have a translation that's not the ESV that we typically read from, uh, you might see this rendered a little bit differently on your page. Uh, the fundamentals of the passage, though, are absolutely clear no matter how you punctuate it. A brother who, as another translation would say, finds himself in humble circumstances ought to rejoice. If you're in humble circumstances, if you don't feel like you've got what you wish you had, Rejoice. For one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that while this humble person might be clothed in rags now, under those rags is a co-heir with Jesus Christ who will one day walk into an undefiled, pure, eternal inheritance with their Savior. Whatever lowly state you find yourself in, it is only temporary. And it is not worth being compared with the glory that is coming, the Bible says. If you have to endure humility and a lowly state in this world to obtain that lofty one, it is a small price to pay. But I think in context, James also has in mind a person who's in difficult straits. That person has an amazing opportunity to see God's growing grace at work in their life. If God uses earthly trials to perfect us, how beautiful is the humble and simple life that the world overlooks 
but is in reality being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ every day. How strong is the faith of someone who has known nothing other than having to rely on the goodness and mercy of God and has been able to see the faithful provision of the Lord again and again and again in their life. I, I used to love reading missionary stories to the kids because they have these amazing things of, we didn't have food and we prayed and someone happened to be traveling through the town with food and God had provided. We, we don't experience that very often here. We're on the other side. But let me say this. If you're here and you look at what others have and you feel less than, or you look at what other people are going through and you look at your own trials and struggles and you feel discouraged, Take encouragement here from James. Your struggle, your trial by earthly measure has nothing to do with your heavenly value. It, it may just be that God has blessed you. It, it may just be that God has blessed you so that you'll know a particularly sweet closeness to him and build a bedrock faith in him that can bless others in trials. And find a joy in your Savior in life that other people may never know. And if you're in that hard place right now and you are not a Christian, it might be that the Lord is trying to show you how he can meet you right where you are. And give you peace and joy even when everything else in the world tells you that there's none to be had where you are. So the humble person should, the poor person should boast in their exaltation. Similarly, James says, a rich person should boast in their humiliation. As before, there's a sense in which the gospel takes the wealth of this world and turns it to ash in front of our eyes. When we see our deepest need is for peace with a holy and righteous God and that no amount of money or power or earthly status is going to purchase that for us, then the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about who he is and his life, death, burial, and resurrection for us, that becomes our treasure. The love of Christ becomes our joy and our foundation, and our wealth becomes transformed into a resource that can be used to further the kingdom of Christ on this earth. But also James is calling to the rich to find joy when their wealth is being stripped away. Um, when we have wealth, it is all too easy, I'll say me, when I have wealth, when I have prosperity, it is all too easy for me to stop trusting in Christ and to begin trusting in my own means. Perhaps James is saying the loss that we feel when our resources dwindle away is a kindness from God because he is using that trial to pry our eyes away from something that is of far less value than Jesus Christ and something that could never give us true and eternal security and joy. All life, even the life of the rich person, is fading. The, the lie of this world is that wealth, power, status, education, achievement, pick a, pick a word for it, can save you. They cannot. And so, while we don't think of it that way, our relative wealth and prosperity is a trial. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, actually said that wealth is one of the greatest of trials that we can have. And that's important because even though we all don't feel it, I do not feel like a wealthy person. <laughs> 
My Toyota cram full of four kids and all my detritus this morning did not feel like a wealthy person on his way to church. But for almost all of us, we are vastly wealthy by earthly standards. So will we have the grace and wisdom to put our wealth into perspective? To see it as paling in comparison to the treasure of our salvation in Jesus Christ? Will we be willing to hold it with an open hand for the Lord to use? And will we cling to Jesus Christ in faith, even if all of that should be taken away from us? If everything we had was wiped out tomorrow, would Jesus Christ still be our hope and our joy and our salvation? While there is a lot of evangelism to be done in world missions, it's always interesting to me, and I guess it shouldn't be surprising, that when we have teams that go to Haiti or Honduras, or Guatemala, or whatever, when they come back, what's one of the things we always hear from them? They always testify about the faith and joy and generosity of the other Christians they met in the place where they were. Many of those people know poverty and hardship that's far greater than anything we will ever know. But that joy in the midst of their struggle is what stood out the most. May God give us grace to be like that. Neil's not here, so I'm going to cheat a little bit right now. I was assigned verses 1 to 11, but I think that's wrong. I think verse 12 is a hinge, at the very least, between this passage and the next. So I'm going to bring it into my sermon this week. Don't tell Neil. In all seriousness, think of what James has said. Trial and struggle will come into your life. If it has not happened to you yet, rejoice. It's coming. (laughs) It is. And when it does, we should have the expectant sense of joy because we know, we know that God ordains and uses these struggles as tools to strengthen our faith in him. Words like trial, struggle, and pain are not fun. Metal that is thrown into the fire to burn off its impurities and hammered into shape probably does not relish the fire or the hammer. That's not fun on the anvil, but the product is something beautiful and worthwhile. And God is doing the same for us. If we are in Jesus Christ, God promises to meet you right there in the midst of whatever struggle or adversity you're facing and give you wisdom to see things through. And so James says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Whatever we face, whether we are brought low or lifted high, whether illness strikes us suddenly or old age withers us away year by year, whether our peers respect us or ridicule us for our ridiculous, silly, mythological faith, whatever the trial, we can hold on because of the goodness and grace of God meeting us in the very midst of our struggle, strengthening us through it, and promising to bring us home to dwell in the presence of the Lord forever, where there will be no more struggle and strife or pain or sadness. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and the rich in his humiliation, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to all those who love him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the great promise we have as your children. We were lost in our sin, far from you, and we deserved nothing from your hand but judgment. But you have made a way for us to be redeemed and brought back into the family of God and to enjoy fellowship with you, foretastes of it now and one day perfected when we see you face to face. And while we are here, Lord, we know that you, our loving Father, you want to grow us and to sanctify us. That because of Jesus Christ, what we receive from you is no longer wrath, because the Savior took that away. Instead, you are a Father who delights to give your children good gifts. And Lord, we ask then, humbly and and in trembling, that you would give us grace and afflictions, Lord. That we don't like them, we know that we grow in them and how we long to grow to be more like our Savior and Lord. Lord, so when trials come, meet us in the midst of them. Strengthen us to trust you more and more. Help us to live wisely and give us words to speak of the hope that we have and that we cling to and that sustains us, rooted in your love for us in the gospel and your beautiful son. We give you glory and praise in his name. Amen.